Hello, Slavic Connection listeners. Today, we have a wonderful interview for y'all with Tomek Jankowski. He's an author who's publishing the second edition of his book, Eastern Europe, everything you need to know about the history and more of a region that shaped our world and still does. At a book signing for the first edition, a, a young Polish lady stood up and, and pointed her finger very accusingly at me and then said, we are not Eastern Europeans, we are Central Europeans. How dare you define us that way? Sergio and I had a great conversation with him. Very apt timing for the book to come out, too. This is the 30-year anniversary of the institution of martial law in Poland. So take a listen and hope you enjoy. Four, three, two, one. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection. Brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Tomek, thank you so much for coming onto the show. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Re really excited to be here. Just to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your, your background, what brought you to your interest in the region, and sort of the impetus for, for, for doing this kind of work? Sure. Well, I, I guess it's kind of easier when you're born into it, when, when you have family that comes from the region, the, the rather exciting 20th century that, that drove parts of my family to North America. So I was always interested in that, and, and I was always interested in the history, particularly of Poland, for obvious reasons. But over time, as I really dove into it, I began to realize that You know, to understand Polish history, I needed to understand something about German history and about Russian history and about Swedish history and Jewish history and et cetera, et cetera. And then I would start diving into those and finding the same phenomenon. I had to, it just kept expanding. And so I finally got to a point where when I started to get really serious and thinking about this, where I needed to start answering some basic questions like, well, what is Eastern Europe? What does it mean to be Eastern European? How do you define it? Is it are these economic traits? Are these cultural traits? Or, and that's kind of where I ended up writing this book. It's both because some people, obviously after the 1980s and 90s, with all the big changes in Eastern Europe, they began asking me a lot of questions. Uh, I spent some years living there and working, studying. I, when I came back, I was asked a lot about what was happening there and what, what it meant and what were the implications and all that kind of stuff. But it all kind of snowballed into my quest to, to really answer that question for myself. recall one really good line from your book where you mentioned that Eastern Europe always finds itself defined from the outside, right? You often hear, you know, oh, we're not Eastern European, we're Central European, or all sorts of qualifiers like this. So how'd you kind of come to that conclusion? And what, what were kind of the steps on the way to, to thinking about things in, term, in, in those terms? At a book signing for the first edition, so my second edition has just come up, back in, I think it was October 2013, the first edition came out. A, a young Polish lady stood up and, and pointed her finger very accusingly at me and then said pretty much what you just said, which is, we are not East Europeans, we are Central Europeans. How dare you define us that way? I've kind of learned that there is no right answer to that. Or, or however you define Eastern Europe, you're going to be wrong. And someone somewhere is going to point that out for you. Very helpful. So I ended up coming up with a definition, but it's It's squeaky, it's, it has some holes in it, and there are some problems. So, for instance, I, I exclude the Caucasus because technically it's in the eastern half of Europe. You know, by, by definition, it's Eastern European, but it really is a microcosm, has a very unique history, and it also 
doesn't participate in a lot of the historical flows, economic and other flows that really define places like Poland or Albania or Estonia. So I had to exclude that. Also, someone just dinged me recently for not covering Finland more, that they think that it ought to be. And certainly um, there are elements of that that are true. And, and, you know, in Hungary in particular, I heard a lot about, you know, the concept of Finlandization during the Cold War. You know, how do we, how do we, you know, what did they do that, that, the Soviets, you know, convince the Soviets to not include them in their empire. And how do we replicate that? So it, it's been a journey and the journey. The book is sort of describes that journey, really. But it, uh, you're right that, that the, the first element is that people from the outside are those who have created the notion of Eastern Europe beginning in the late 18th century with the philosophers in France. And, and they had their own reasons. They weren't necessarily interested in local history. They were defining elements of their own civilization and they, they just needed a uh, a scapegoat, basically, or, or a shadow, something to compare it to. But I, I think one of the interesting counters, though, I would, I would have. So um, in my day job, I'm an analyst. Uh, I spend a lot of time speaking to business leaders uh, and professional services all over the world, including in Europe and Eastern Europe. And one of the things that's interesting, so first of all, if you ask them, they're still in Eastern Europe. They, you know, by and large, they all have in their regional deployment of resources, there's an Eastern Europe or Central and Eastern Europe or Eastern Central Europe or some variation of that. The region exists as far as they're concerned. The good news is that it's not such a bad thing. It doesn't necessarily mean backward, archaic violence, religious extremists anymore. To them in the corporate world, it has come to mean strong stem cells, strong local education, positive for offshoring opportunities, great connections with the German financial world but also with further you know, connections to the Middle East. Too. So it's, there, there are positive things when they say Eastern Europe. They, they are thinking about opportunity, not the Mel Brooks, you know, always night. People walk around in flowery costumes. Costume is always light, uh, lightning in the sky, and you know, you're, you're fleeing monsters in the night. So defining, there is, again, there is no good way to really put down the, the lines and to explain why Prague, for instance, is, a, is an Eastern European city by most people's definitions, except the Czechs. But Vienna is considered a Western European city. No, Vienna is west of Prague. So you have a lot of weirdness like that. No model is going to completely stand up to total scrutiny. But for me, there was a, a, an interesting economic story and a cultural story and culture in the sense of, of political and social development. And that was kind of the theme I ended up following that led me to putting the pegs down where I did for Eastern Europe. So, uh, but again, I know, you know, <laughs> there are those out there who will disagree. And I know I'll hear. I, I really appreciate the uh, young Frankenstein analogy to com- tell people about the stereotypes of Eastern Europe. My go-to is um, Eurotrip. Oh. The scene when they end up on the bus and they go to yeah. Bratislava. Um, listen, we, uh, we're trying to get to Berlin, Germany. Do you know if there's a train coming anytime soon? <laughs> Oh, yes, very soon. They are building it now. But yeah, so much of this is tied up in history. And I, I, I like that it's you, you, you took an ambitious approach to this, right? Because when you're talking about what Eastern Europe is, there's different people will go back to different points and, and, and you, you go all the way back to, to prehistory, to Rome and the Avars and these semi-mythic figures from past like uh, Samo. And how did you go about doing like conducting the research for this? So uh, that's a 10 year long story. And, and admittedly, when I started it, I you know, was thinking this is gonna take weeks, maybe a month or two. So uh, I had a full head of hair back then. 
it was, first of all, relying on the sources that I knew within the general framework. So those, it's generally broken up, at least in the 1970s and 80s, you had the traditional national approaches. There were historians of Poland, historians of Romania, historians of Hungary, going, using their work, but following their, you know, reading their bibliographies carefully and following those pathways. And also one thing that was helpful is I, I reached out to some of these people for help when I didn't understand some elements or needed direction pointing uh, about sources. And quite frankly, a lot of them were really helpful. People like, you know, Stephen Fisher Galopsi, for instance, you know, they kicked me in the right direction for things or, you know, just a minor email exchange or something. But so it was trying to break out of the traditional molds of looking at these country specific, people specific, event specific histories that you uh, at that point found in, about Eastern Europe and really trying to follow these narratives of, again, the, the bigger question was, if there is an Eastern Europe, why is it different from Western Europe or anything else around? What is What defines it and what doesn't define it? Where are the commonalities? Where is being Polish no different than being French? So, so do you have any do you have any working theories for the moment on that point? I mean, exactly, you know, if if there if there is an Eastern Europe, why is it an Eastern Europe? Why isn't it part of Western Europe? Why is it Central Europe? Sort of what you know? What's the what's the background of this uh, sort of pseudo geographical divide? Because as you mentioned earlier, right, like. Vienna, where is that? And then, I mean, especially if you think in terms of Prague having been, you know, one of the jewels in the crown of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, things get even more complicated. Again, I turn to history. And I think there's a negative point here where it's not so much what happened in Eastern Europe. It's this very dramatic economic shift, you know, post-Roman Europe. And some of the earliest inklings of, of the revival of trade routes takes place most improbably through the Baltic. You know, nobody was looking at a map, clearly, when they were doing these. <laughs> but, uh, you know, through avoiding the Balkans and going through what is now Russia to, to you know, the, both the Eastern Byzantine lands and then the Arab lands, the Abbasid Empire and instead of the Persian lands, you have that trade, which is interrupted by the Crusades and the development of the Mediterranean trade systems. But then those were disrupted by the rise of the Ottoman Empire in, in you know, the 1300s, 1400s. And you have the rise of the Atlantic states, these states that start, you know, that are, that are getting a grip on shipping technology enough that they can develop sea, sea, deep sea going trade and, and exploration. And that just leads to a complete change in a complete transformation of the Atlantic facing states in Europe, uh, in Western Europe. And that story, it's, it's what they did and what didn't happen in Eastern Europe, you know, that, that it was, not only would not a part of that, but was very much left behind uh, economically by those events, I think that becomes the beginning, I think, of the, the defining element. Because up until that point, as you say, Prague, you know, 15th, 16th, 17th century Prague was a major European education center, scientific center, um, and, and political center within the Holy Roman Empire, important enough to fight a major 30 year war over in, in the early 17th century. And yet a century later, it's a blip. It's barely existed, uh, you know, from, from the larger economic and, and political picture. So I think that is a defining element. Uh, some people start sort of begin with the second serfdom and that side of it. But I, I see a larger picture of what's happening very dramatically in Western Europe. And that it isn't just in Western Europe, it's Western Europe 
creating the first truly global economic systems and political systems that Eastern Europe isn't a part of. And, and I think that's where we start. And that's kind of how some of the philosophes at the end of the 18th century were thinking about Eastern Europe as medieval relics stuck in the past, backwards, you know, there be monsters, that, that kind of concept. But it's, it's sort of a stark way of, of, of defining it, but you're cutting across lines that, you know, again, going back just a century earlier, in the 18th century and the 19th century, just a century earlier than that, it really don't make sense that suddenly, you know, appear bizarre. The, the, the different way that relationships work, economic and political relationships in Europe before then. So, so you you also mentioned the the Crusades earlier as interrupting various you know economic political processes. I'm wondering what importance do you give in terms of the sort of establishing of this divide to the Great Schism that ended up resulting in what we now know as you know the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. It's definitive for the early state formation in the region. More, I think, because of the competition between them, and it's most dramatic there in the Czech lands, where you have the, the Eastern and the Western, the Frankish churches really battling it out, you know, the, the Cyril and Masodius story. But even in, in Bulgaria and Serbia, uh, in Hungary, you know, this, this competition between these two, it, it's not theological, it's political, but it, it, it becomes a defining element for how these states are formed. But I think it becomes impactful from a cultural level or on a cultural level only later in the 17th and 18th centuries when you have these waning power structures the the, the polish lithuanian states the hungarian states subsumed into the ottoman empire where they're kind of superficial this this distance between the western and the eastern churches and it manifests in in the polish lithuanian commonwealth in weird ways with um a degree of protestantism that, that plays a really strange role, especially in the Lithuanian side, even in the Polish side. It's just not appreciated as much, I think, just how much both Lutheranism, Lutheranism in the cities and Calvinism among the, the lower schlachta and, and the more educated and literate merchant uh, class, for instance. These, these things play a, a, a role in defining, I think, local culture in a way at a time when things are going sideways economically. And I think people are looking, starting to look for these definitions and they become more important in, for instance, relations between Poland and Russia and, and uh, Hungarians and Romanians. These become another, a further cultural marker that becomes problematic, but it's it's something people are seizing on. But I don't think I don't think the Great Schism, when it, when it happened at the time, when it, when it first unfolded, I, I don't think it was as problematic for Eastern Europe. And if anything, I think it provided opportunity. It provided a secondary power center, competitive elements that more adept local rulers could could uh, utilize leverage to get resources. And you have weird things like the modern Hungarian crown, which is a, a Byzantine crown, literally with a, a Latin Roman crown welded on top of it. Well, yeah, and I, really anecdotally and I guess autobiographically, my uh, my grandfather was a village Orthodox priest in Transylvania. But my grandmother was born a Greek Catholic, which are, of course, Catholics who follow the Byzantine rite, 
and she naturally had to convert in order to marry my grandfather. So that kind of hearing about that led me to sort of look into the background of this. And yeah, as it turns out, Transylvania, of course, having been a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, namely under the administration of the Hungarian crown, this uh, Greco-Catholic business was created essentially in order to try and get the native Romanians to, at least in some capacity, convert to Catholicism. You're not entirely on our team, but you're part of, you're kind of sort of on our team. Right. <laughs> Close enough. Just, just recognize <laughs> the Pope in Rome. We're good. But it was important, again, one of the great side you know, consequences, unintended consequences of that, for instance, was centuries later in the 18th century, it's the Uniates, that those, those Greek Catholic Romanians who are able to function in Romanian, unlike the Greek Orthodox Church in, in Romania itself, in Wallachia and Moldavia, that has to, to operate in Greek and still is, is tied to, to the, the church in Constantinople, both legally, uh, linguistically, rights and terms. So yep. you have the birth of, of Romanian ethnic consciousness really coming from that halfway Greek Catholic uh, uniate religion. Right. Absolutely. I think that's really well said. And I mean, even up to today, the Romanian church is still in full communion with the Greek Orthodox Church. So complete mutual recognition of services, of, uh, of sacraments and everything. So, yeah, that's a that's a really, really solid symbol, I guess, for what we're talking about here. When uh, so I think it was last year that the Ukrainian Church finally won its own autocephalous yeah. uh, independence from from uh, the Russian Orthodox Church. It became a full Orthodox Church, as it were. But immediately, I noticed off to the side a lot of chatter in in Ukrainian circles about, okay, so they're good. Now, what about the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, the Ukrainian Uniate Church that was created with the, the under the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, right. one that was suppressed so heavily by the Soviets? And we noticed Keith was really excited about reviving that. You know, what's what's going on with this? I'm just listening. I don't know a whole lot about Orthodox. I do. Uh, <laughs> I do more Czechs. So, <laughs> yeah. I, well, we would in that case be remiss not to mention Jan Hus and the Hussites. I mean, that, that's a critical moment too, right? Yeah, I, I think that kind of hits at the, um, you know, is there such a thing as Eastern Europe point? Because that's one of the main things Czechs will point to and claim, no, we're, we're West because Jan Hus is, I mean, he's basically a translation of John Wycliffe into Czech, but also was a huge influence on Martin Luther. The Hussite Wars were as much a dynastic struggle between the son of Charles IV, the younger son, Sigismund. And, and the Czech estates, as it was a, a religious conflict, or as the communists put it, a proto-Marxist revolution. But jury's still out on that one. But no, it, it is this interesting, it, it really just shows that there is this, this, li this line is not set, and that it depends on kind of what you're talking about, if it even exists. And, and I think the kind of conclusion to, to draw from that is maybe it doesn't, and it's more of a, a, a circumstantial construct that I mean, it makes sense in the context of the Cold War, why it would be drawn where it is. But beyond that, it, it really, it, uh, it falls apart when you go back more than 70, 80 years. Totally agree. And one of the fun things with Czechs is, as you say, they'll, they'll immediately invoke the Hussites. Uh, but then you ask them, so are, are you Protestant or Catholic? And we neither. We don't go into So I guess they have the lowest uh, church attendance rates in Europe at the moment. And I've seen some articles very without much substantiation claiming that this probably is the Hussite's fault. It's, it's got something to do with that. But it's kind of interesting, again, to see that the, the rise in, in Transylvania of uh, the Unitarian movement and how that also, both through Poland and through the Czech, the uh, United Brethren, sort of post-Hussite Protestants, 
you know, again, something that, that played a role, uh, a big role in some Dutch and English strains of Calvinism that even were transplanted to Boston, you know, in colonial times. So, there, as you say, the, the, the East-West divide breaks down when you get past the 20th century. So I'd kind of be curious then, speaking of breaking down, how do you understand, I guess, the role and the idea of Eastern Europe sort of playing out with the collapse of the Soviet Union and of the Eastern Bloc and the various communist governments, and then accession attempts to the EU? Because now we have this new sort of East-West divide that is roughly... EU borders, right? I mean, in Romania, right, we are in the EU, but we're not part of Schengen, for example. So yeah, I'd, I'd be curious if you have any, any any comments in that in that direction. Again, I think it's a it's a negative issue. So Eastern Europe was very neatly divided after World War II by the Cold War. I mean, absolutely, there's a line in the ground. You knew exactly where it was with with the Iron Curtain, and and from a Western perspective, that was actually welcomed, not not necessarily the Cold War. But A, having somebody else please take care of Eastern Europe, this problematic region that you know, we, we tried to clean up after World War I, it just we, you know, it wouldn't work with us. And then number two, you know, it's all, as far as recovery from the war and all that stuff, all the investments that have to take place, that's somebody else's problem. So Eastern Europe was very happily written off by the West, you know, of course described as tragic and those poor Poles and Czechs and Romanians stuck behind the Iron Curtain, but thank God they're over there. It created a very artificially clean definition that we are struggling with right now. And to your point, you know, one of the things that that woman I mentioned earlier was pointing at me angrily saying, we are not Eastern European. One of the things she could throw at me was, we're in the European Union now. We're in NATO. You know, Eastern Russia, Belarus, those are Eastern European. So it it does create another opportunity to, to start drawing lines. And of course, in all of this, as I was trying to argue earlier, the, the implication is Eastern European is bad. Eastern European is underdeveloped, is not democratic, is something, but ain't good. Right. And I think some of the important parts about NATO and European Union is they were voluntary. That, you know, that Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic, you know, eagerly joined these. Uh, and both for, there were certainly reasons related to Russia and related to concerns about security and et cetera. But there was also the hope that being a part of this club automatically means you're prosperous, you're wealthy, you're just like the West, you know, and, and you are the West now. You, you're in, you're in the club. Right, right, right. And that's turned out to be a little more complicated story, as it turned out. But it, it still is, those, those two things are, are self-defining, and that's an important element. So, and that's one of the arguments I make in the book, is that at least post-Soviet Empire, so Imperium, using Kapuscinski's description, there's... There's the opportunity for Eastern Europe. To, they can't completely get rid of the name or the, the, the term, the moniker, but they can start redefining what it means to be an Eastern European. And certainly, I'll say that never before in history, looking at the average, the, the living standard, the life expectancies, the political relationships that the average person walking the streets in Romania, in Poland, in the Czech Republic, this is the best time in history to be an Eastern European. You know, that's not to say everywhere is great living in Eastern Ukraine and Donbass right now. Regardless of which side you choose, it really sucks. But on average, this is a golden age for being Eastern European. And it's an opportunity for the people there to redefine what that means for the world. But the world ain't letting go of that, that definition, that's for sure. Certainly, the Chinese have some very specific political goals, and they are funneling them through their concept of Eastern Europe, for instance. So, 
in the beginning of the second edition, I don't know if this is in the first edition, but in the second edition, you have a little bit where you you lay out some of the ideas of who you think is reading the book. From this, I understand that you very much were writing a book for non-Eastern Europeans about Eastern Europe. And I, I'd just be interested in hearing more about your thought process about that. And I, I mean, I'm my family came from, you know, just outside of Gdansk, so who knew what they were? But that was a very long time ago. I'm, I'm very much just, I'm an American. So when I, I'm interested in these things, I'm also thinking about writing about a place I'm not from for people also not from there. So I, I would just be interested in hearing about your thought process about that kind of writing and, and approaching the genre. Part of it was just pragmatic. It was, again, it, it took me 10 years and, I, you know, it's not a poor me statement, but there was a lot of work that went into it. And that meant a lot of time, a lot of resources. So justifying this to my wife and also to myself of, of doing this, I needed I was I needed to have some very specific reasons for doing that. And I based it on getting a lot of questions from a lot of quarters. And it kind of came from three basic groups. It was people responding to uh, what was topical at the time, you know, from the 80s and the 90s. You know, once they either saw my name or learned that I lived there for some years, wanted to know what was it like, what was happening. Number two, people who, like you, have the background, like you and I, who have the background from the region, some a little closer, some more distant. Uh, and three, uh, I was also getting, because of my job, I was getting questions about you know, business and investment opportunities and that type of thing. Um, but there was also an element, and going very specifically to your point, so I do have family in Poland, um, both, you know, and, uh, my, my, my wife is also from Poland uh, directly, and, and so we, uh, I, I have a, it's not an abstraction to me, you know, it's not beyond having lived there, uh, you know, I, I have people in mind when I saw, you know, the, the news of, of troops massing on the eastern Ukrainian border, I've got family who live on the Polish-Ukrainian border, and we actually made plans when this whole crisis started back in 2014 for what happens if things really go sideways and we need to get them out of Poland, you know, so that kind of thing. But when I was in Hungary as a student, I, I had some friends who uh, were very involved in politics and, and were working hard to dismantle the, 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 the Soviet system there. And I, I helped them with some things, just some very minor things, but it was just footwork, basically. But it was risky what we were doing. But I understood at the time that it was risky for me and it was risky for them. But they were also risking their families and everyone they loved, there was a danger for them. Whereas mine was, for the most part, safe back in the U.S. You know, I wasn't risking that part of it. And that consciousness is kind of in the book as well. That sense of, I do have very direct connections, but they are, I'm, I am still removed from the region. And so that, that's kind of baked into how I look at some of these things, understanding that, you know, I, you know, even having experienced some of these events, still, I didn't experience them in the same way that the people standing next to me. We're experiencing them. Um, so, uh, but there's also other things like uh, one of the things that surprised me was as the region started opening up over the early 90s and a lot more Westerners began coming, I was surprised that even Western Europeans, well educated, well traveled, worldly Western Europeans would show up and be shocked. And, and I mean, one of them was like, they have cars, they have buildings, they have telephones. You know, they really expected to find it. It was just like mud huts and hovels and forests. So it was, it was surprising to me just how much the region was really misunderstood and just utterly um, beyond the consciousness of so many people outside the region. So yes, definitely for this book, my audience was people outside of Eastern Europe and, and trying to, again, starting with my major thesis, what is Eastern Europe, but also trying to show them 
it's a real place where real people live and they for the most part live modern lives you know i describe uh, every halloween i get asked let's talk about transylvania and uh, and you know, I, and I did a lot of uh, ethnographic work there. My I, my dual degrees were were in history and, and ethnography in Hungary, and um, so then Hungarians they send you to Transylvania for obvious reasons, and so I did, I'd often spend like weeks at a time there, and usually some village where they pre-assigned us. But I would describe for Americans, and you'd be shocked to hear you see kids walking, staring at their phones, walking, listening to music on the street. Cars whizzing by as people go to work as plumbers, teachers, doctors, IT people. You know, they go to movies and rock concerts. You know, they, it's a normal place. It's a real place. And, and um, that's kind of the, the walls I'm trying to break down a little bit with showing, especially with the useless trivia sections, these sort of walled off little anecdotal pieces that I insert throughout the time. I, I, I love trying those to parts. Bring out the, they were a lot of fun to write, but I usually have ulterior motives. I'm trying to show something that, you know, here's here's some element that are connections that you need to be thinking about. Well, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's such an important project. I mean, I, once again, anecdotally, I remember growing up in Texas in the 90s as the son of Romanian immigrants. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was asked, you know, oh, in Romania, is there electricity? Do you have computers? Do you, you know, and obviously in Texas, I would respond with, oh, OK, do you ride a horse to school? Right. <laughs> Wait, they don't. Well, <laughs> the, the irony there is that horse and carriage is still a means of transportation in Romania. So I yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also this, I think second or third fastest bandwidth rates in the world as a country on average. Yes, so. that's right. In fact, Bernie Sanders during his uh, presidential campaign ma- made some kind of statement to the effect of Bucharest, Romania has higher internet speeds than most parts of the United States. And this is unacceptable, which caused all the Romanians on Twitter to freak out like, oh, my God, if Bernie Sanders gets elected, they're going to bomb us for our internet. (laughs) 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 Just uh, anecdotally, when I came back after five years uh, of of Hungarian university and came to the U.S. and and, basically... I was told we're recognizing nothing. You know, you're in Eastern Europe. What? Yeah, come on. You know, do they do they have letters there? So, you know, a I was told that the main bursar's office you started from scratch. So I I have a, a ten year four year degree, but they did say we could go to the, you know, the individual departments, the band history and cultural anthropology here in the U.S. Maybe they'll recognize. Just show them what you did in your classes, and maybe they'll take some of that. And so I did that, and the reaction in those departments was, yeah, this is way too advanced for what we do at the undergraduate level here in the U.S., so we can't take it. No, exactly. My, my my father had the same thing. He had a master's degree from the University of Cluj in Transylvania, and he had a year-long battle to try and get that, what is it called, the equivalent in the United States. That was a huge uphill battle for him, too. So, right. yeah, I mean, even on this basic level of, like, to what degree is the legitimacy of the educational institution recognized, yeah. you know? The irony being that most of those schools were founded before the United States. <laughs> right. <laughs> or a lot, a lot of them, not most of them. But you uh, know. Yeah, my university was in a, a 14th century, or at least the main building was a 14th century monastery. And that's where the university itself was actually founded. In Poland, it's more than 20 hours since the military took over. A move, they said, to prevent civil war. The troops had moved in at midnight, surrounding Solidarity's offices all over the country. Our government and those of our allies have expressed moral revulsion at the police state tactics of Poland's oppressors. Poland, now under martial law, is sealed off from the outside world. 
December 13th of this year is the 40th anniversary since the institution of martial law in Poland, which was counting backwards, December 13th, 1981. And that was a pretty momentous event in at least contemporary modern Polish history. So yeah, Mr. Jankowski, for the uninitiated, can you run our listeners through sort of just what happened essentially? So I'll start with an anecdote. A friend of mine, um, not at the time, but since, he told me he was he was a journalist. Uh, I, I worked briefly for the uh, for Polska Agencja Prasowa, the Polish press agency, very very briefly. Um, and he he had worked there for years. He was dedicated. He worked in the English language section, and that meant he was allowed to travel abroad, which is a really unusual thing in the early '80s. And he basically said he was coming back from some assignments, and of course. You get to the border. Now, he was coming by ship. I think he was coming from Sweden, but um, so he's approaching Gdańsk. And the funny thing, of course, is, you know, the the uh, border people at the time, as I know, there's a Hungarian friend of mine once joked that, you know, they would go through his very thoroughly through his luggage. It, you know, if, if he had a brick of cocaine, they probably wouldn't even know what it was. They'd just toss it out to the side. But if he had a copy of Solzhenitsyn, there was going to be trouble. And so he's anticipating that. But uh, the ship's approaching Polish. They're in Polish waters. They just entered Polish waters, and then suddenly several military ships approach it. And this is just a small, basically glorified, you know, passenger boat. That's all. It's not nothing dramatic. Uh, but uh, they're surrounded by a couple military Polish military vessels, and they're shouting on these these speakers over at them that uh, Poland is under military lockdown, and you know, everyone on deck, everyone hands clear, everyone, you know, don't touch anything. We will be boarding this vessel and everything. And he's like, it was, I, he really thought that had, had World War III broken out when I was, you know, coming back, what happened? He's thinking that maybe, you know, NATO armies are invading or something. And um, it turned out to be martial law. Um, if you can imagine your TV going blank, this is pre-internet days, of course. So TV goes blank, phones go down, mail stops, army and police on the streets. You can't go out except for specific things. And this is at a time when the economy is in an advanced state of collapse in Poland, where buying just the most basic soap, basic foods, you know, the necessities. When I worked for POP, for the, the Polish press agency, part of my salary annually, or monthly rather, was uh, I got two rolls of toilet paper, I got two bars of soap, and I got two big uh, pouches of tea, of loose tea. And those are things you couldn't buy in, in shops. You just couldn't find them. So as a state employee, I, I had this wonderful largest um, that I got that average citizens had to go to the black market for at the time. So this state of affairs went on for months, uh, actually almost a little over a year before they started loosening some of the things. I had a landlady um, when I last lived in Warsaw, which was decades ago. She, because the television would only be on for about two hours a day during martial law, it was mostly just the, the authorities giving speeches, justifying what they were doing. And she was an artist and she had an artist temperament. So she just unplugged the TV. And then with a black marker, she drew uh, Jaruzelski's bust, uh, as you would see him on the TV, just sort of this caricature of, of Jaruzelski. And that was it. She left it. And because and, uh, I, this is, I, I knew her years later, you know, about, seven or eight years later and um and, and i was like what <laughs> what is this and why are you you know why is it in your living room and she explained that she's like why why bother turning the tv on this is pretty much what we saw 
I have so many horrific stories from that time of, of uh, friends. One friend who was a little girl at the time, who's the police just arbitrarily, they were coming back from shopping, her father and her police just grabbed him and walloped and beat the crap out of him on the street corner with her terrified. There's nothing. She's just screaming and crying. There's nothing you can do. And when it was over, he had to get up and calm his daughter down and continue home. There was no recourse. There was, there was nothing you could do. So what was martial law? It was the admission of failure. Um, it was, so uh, the regime had gone through, it's a long story that goes back to the 50s of uh, the Polish communists trying to challenge the Soviets and kind of sort of winning, actually, but still being on a leash and never being able to uh, really break out of that mold. And, and because of, of the historic relationship between Poles and Russians, but because of the dynamics of the Cold War, uh, Moscow never even trusted Warsaw even less because of the fact that they were giving them a little leash in the 1960s. And that prompted the, the, the Polish communists to be even more loyal um, than, than many of the surrounding communist regimes, which made them really popular at home. And it drove the economy into the ground. And they went through a, a series of leadership changes uh, in 1970. Uh, there was violence. And over the 70s, uh, Poland, at first, for the first half of the 70s, Poland borrowed very heavily uh, from Western banks and, and basically like a teenager with a credit card, ripped up its, its credit lines and ended up billions in debt and with nothing to show for it. Being a dictatorship, they, of course, wasted all those funds. And so for the seven, second half of the 1970s, if you were alive in the time, you had collapsing living standards. Whereas in the first half of the decade, you could walk into a store and buy stuff, food stores, uh, department stores. Uh, you, you could, they were poor quality, they were Eastern Bloc made, but from, you could get what you needed to get along. But from about 1976 onward, that started being less and less true. What made General Jaroselski, a man most regarded as a moderate in Poland, order the clampdown? His country is billions of pounds in debt to the West, debts incidentally that are now even less likely to be repaid. His people are so short of food, they're living on what many would consider a starvation diet. I remember a friend, when I was leaving a town once, insisted on driving me to the train station, even though it was walkable distance. But he, he, this was an important thing for him. And so he, he went on to drive me, but to get the gas, he had to take some meat that he had secretly hidden away, trade it with a neighbor. We had to drive to the neighbor for, to get about a, like a gallon or so of gasoline that he could use in his car. Then we went to the train station. That was that was how things functioned. Uh, everybody was compromised. You had to be in the black market to to just to be able to survive. It, it was impossible to live legally, and if that's you know if you can wrap your mind around that. And so at the end of the 70s, you have John Paul II elected pope, which kind of put a nail in the legitimacy of the regime. It just had no legitimacy. The rise of the trade unions in Gdańsk and, and solidarity, and they, they it took months to come together. When they did, they, they effectively ruled the country, not politically, but in every way that was meaningful, including their famous stories of them being able to, in the middle of uh, state broadcasts, they would just, the TV people were all solidarity, the cameramen and et cetera were all solidarity people. They literally just in mid-broadcast stopped the broadcast. So the regime from early 1980 over the next year and a half just unraveled and lost control of the situation. And you had the Soviets in full panic mode 
we're still getting very conflicting stories. There's just another one that came out a few days ago about the role that, that the U.S. played in possibly stopping a Soviet invasion, sort of like Czechoslovakia in 1968, uh, stopping a repeat in 1981. It isn't clear to me. I've seen some people who've, seen, who've worked in, in, in Soviet archives they believe that Brezhnev really was just too afraid to take the step, or at least his advisors, that they thought that invading Poland was going to be, yes, they'd win, but it was going to be a real ugly, messy story. Lots of bloodshed, lots of, you know, unpleasant things for the world to see. But whatever whatever stopped the, stopped the Soviets, they decided not to intervene militarily. And it was in December 1981, Jaruzowski, who's just a person who, the more you learn about him, the greater you dislike him, one of those people. There's just not much in his resume that is going to make you feel warm and fuzzy. Uh, from 1970, when he was generally ordered uh, the army to open fire on uh, unarmed workers who were protesting, um, he was one of the guys who, who uh, drove the Polish participation in the invasion of Czechoslovakia in August 1968. He uh, seized power in, uh, and declared martial law, and in doing so, this was essentially a military coup, and it was there was very little pretense of communism or Soviet brotherliness or anything. It was we're we're holding on to power. We are going to stay in power, and you, we're not going to let you do these things that are clearly, even though solidarity works hard to not directly challenge the regime to try to create a revolution, so to speak, to give the Soviets the excuse. So the the, the army seizes control. Uh, in December 1980, and like I said, that day if you were pulled, you suddenly, there was no TV, there was no mail, there was, you couldn't call family, you were stuck in your city, you weren't allowed to leave. If you had family who lived in another part of the country, you might not talk to them for the next three, four years and not know how they're doing. Um, and you had military people, streets, trucks, convoys, driving around with loudspeakers telling you, stay in your home. You know, um, some people after a while were allowed to go to work, others were you know, allowed to go back to school. It took some months for that to unfold, but you were in this silence of not knowing what was happening and, uh, elsewhere in Poland, much less, you know, in, in, in the world. And um, this uh, this state of affairs went on for a couple of years, and then it they backed off the worst elements of martial law. Mail resumed, telephone resumed. If you if you remember the old telephone networks in Eastern Europe. Uh, in Poland, there were there were three systems. Um, you had to go to uh, the post office if you wanted to make a phone call, and you would fill out paperwork and give it to the person. And they would, if it was a local call, they they would call the person and just tell you, okay, it's you know, then say go to booth number three, your party's there. If we're outside the country, you had to fill out more paperwork. Uh, but I, I called a friend in London once, uh, and all she there was no way to let her know this was coming. She just gets a person on the line speaking Polish. She doesn't speak Polish. And she kind of guesses it's probably Tomek. <laughs> and so she stays on the line, but it takes, you know, I have to be called. I have to go over to the thing and get into the booth, call, dial up, wait for the connection. That's how the phone system worked. It was all about control. So, um, and the, the biggest part was for as bad as the economy was before 1980, it utterly collapsed after 1981. Um, the, the, the regime was thoroughly, completely focused on staying in power. Nothing else mattered. Well, well, and my, my understanding of this economic decline that you're describing is, is, is something pretty parallel, actually, to what happened in Romania with Ceausescu. 
the taking on of significant debt from Western creditors and then the problem of, oh, we have to pay it back, which sort of leads to these austerity measures, right? Like the rationing and everything. I mean, it was the same in Romania during the 80s. Ceausescu did actually famously have exactly zero national debt by the time that he was, he was, you know, deposed and executed. But but anyway, I, I, I'm curious to hear a little bit uh, from you, Mr. Yankovsky, about what are the what, what's the contemporary uh, modern day sort of legacy of this period of martial law and of the junta and everything that happened during those uh, those very fateful years. Like, you know, what's sort of the how what's the public remembrance of this? What's the public discourse, if any, really about what happened uh, in 1981? Uh, that's a really interesting question. It plays out in our family um, and, and families all across. People my age and older, uh, even though I'm barely out of my 20s, clearly. Right, right, but, right, right, uh, right. <laughs> there are parts of our family who remember those days. And the experience at the time was of sheer misery. But it was misery that was looked upon as, well, this is Poland. This sort of thing just happens here. You know, for people who through generations of the world wars, and et cetera, that was just the expectation that things are probably going to get worse. That's just how things work here. And, and there are just certain ways you have to live. Um, there, there, for instance, if you were a child growing up in this period, your parents pounded into you about the difference between what happens at home and what gets said at home and what you say about home and what you say outside of home. It's an important, a, a, a key survival tactic that you have to make. So there's that element, but then there's a generation, even those who were very young kids when this was happening, but not enough to really remember it much. They've grown up into a very different Poland. They live in a Poland today where Warsaw is in the top 50 cities, most expensive cities to live in in the world, where they have expectations of having great careers, of being able to live a, a good European level, middle class lifestyle. There's a very stark contrast between those two Polands. And the people who've lived through those periods, there's a problem in those two worlds interacting. And you see that in modern Polish politics. Uh, Kaczynski, the sort of power behind the throne, modern Polish government, is very much a product of that earlier Poland. And you can't really see outside of that Poland. You can't see beyond that vision. And he's still sticking to that there's a tradition, there's church, there's the, the certain you know, ethnic and, and national traditions that we must keep with it. You know, it, it's a very much circle the wagons and preserve what you can mentality that that regime, that that, that gen, those generations were, were born with. And I have elements of that in my family, too, as opposed to the new generation that thinks we're Poles, we're Europeans. You know, we can go to we can go to Germany, we can go to London, we can do whatever we want. And, and they expect to live these very using older nomenclature uh very first world lifestyles so right right well i'm yeah I'm, I'm i'm glad you made that connection because i mean obviously the 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 polish government of today along with you know orban's hungary is uh is is causing quite a bit of concern for for uh, for observers and for citizens alike very particular so i spent some years in hungary as i said i have a lot of friends and, and colleagues there and um yeah it, it, it's it's very concerning. He is more dangerous than Kaczynski. Kaczynski is dangerous to democracy, to rule of law, to free markets. And, and I'm not interested in these things from an ideological perspective. I'm interested in them, in them in the sense that there's a clear correlation between quality of life, standard of living, and these things, and how they're implemented. 
And he's, Kaczynski is not anti-democratic. It's just that he's got this tradition-oriented view. And when democracy gets in the way, he will plow through it. When it doesn't, then he's fine with it. Orban's different. <laughs> Orban has a very specifically anti-democratic belief system. He's very blunt about it. You can go to this, the, the website of the president of Hungary. They translate his speeches in English there, and you can read with great horror. In the book, I actually, uh, and I've got to be careful about this, I compare some of his speeches to Mussolini's 1932 fascist manifesto. I'm not saying that Orban is a fascist. I'm not trying to label him that way, but I'm trying to show that many of the impulses that drove people to abandon democracy in Europe in the 1920s and 30s are resurfacing, and Orban reflects a lot of those beliefs and impulses. And it, it, it didn't end well in the 1930s. And it's not going to end well. And I, I still have hope that I, I, in the book, I point towards both Slovakia and Romania, which flirted post-1990 with um, authoritarian personalities and regimes, but both also were able to come back from that and were able to reestablish democratic norms. And yes, every democracy is flawed and there are corruption issues and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they're both still healthy, functioning democracies today. And they, they are countries that are, you know, in the larger context of the world, are good places to live. And as somebody who traveled in Romania in the very late 1980s, and I'm sorry, even after living in Poland, I was shocked. Oh, it is shocking. It is shocking. I, I, I will say that uh, my first time in Poland was in 2012. And, you know, I've, I've, I've been to Romania every year since I was born, basically spent a significant amount of time there. So... Preparing to get on the train to Warsaw, I was thinking, oh, you know, it's probably going to be, I don't know, maybe a slightly better version of Romania. But no, I was blown away by Warsaw. I mean, uh, it, 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 it makes Romania look like I, I, no offense to my countrymen or anything, but there's a very significant disparity there. Well, the, the positive side of that is it's come a long way since. And, it, you know, in visiting Bucharest today, wow, it, it's amazing. And again, it's, it's still... It's still got its challenges and issues. I was uh, I was taking the train from Arad in, in northeast in the Bana region, and it, and it would arc uh, around the Carpathians down to Bucharest. This is 89, I think. And I was in culture shock. Just how I, I couldn't believe that, that cities like this existed in Europe. Yeah, that there was, I expected it to be a little different, but I was shocked that the difference between Hungary and Poland on the one hand and Romania at that time was stark. Uh, and I remember Lowe's Ceausescu was one of his terms when Western journalists asked him, why, are, why is there no food in, this, in the stores? And his reaction was, we keep it all in the freezers in the back. Uh, so, very, very nice. Thank you. But I met a guy, one of my, my compartment mates was, a, he turned out to be a Soviet Moldavian, and this was his first time to Romania. And now uh, I, as everybody went to university in Eastern at the time, we all had to study Russian. So I spoke a little Russian kind of, sort of, little German, and uh, between those, and uh, that's how we communicated. But he made it clear that he thought he was in the West. He thought Romania was this modern country, and it was, he was amazed at how, how advanced it was. So that told me a lot about Soviet Moldova. But as I say, one of the amazing things to me is my pictures from then and, and now, just how much it, it has transformed. And even, you know, Transylvania has Kluznapok, as you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Brasov has become uh, kind of a tourist town now. It's becoming a big deal. I'm getting people who are asking me. I included something about the Sekai, uh, the Sekwas in the book, because I'm getting people who are asking me, what are these wood carvings? They're wonderful. 
So just how much, it, it's difficult to, to really communicate how much parts of Eastern Europe have, have really transformed in a single human lifetime. Uh, Sergio, I'm just going to quick mention something, by the way, going back to, you know, that first trip that I took, and I took many signs, and by the way, I was also trapped in Romania during the, the beginning of the revolution, but I was a student in Hungary and a complete idiot. In the moment that things it broke out, the, the Romanian revolution, I headed for the, the border and just, I was amazed they let me in, but I couldn't get out for about a week and a half then, all the trains shut down. Uh, very luckily, of a family in Ara in the north took me in. Uh, it, to their own extreme danger, quite frankly. But they took care of us, fed us, did everything, showed us around for as much as they could. But when I was in Timisoara, and this is about a week and a half after the events of December 17th, where you know, the army had, had opened up fire on, on protesters, there was a, a woman, again, I, at that point, I spoke no Romanian, you know, Hungarian, Polish, some Russian, some German, some Bulgarian, none of which are going to help you in Romania. Everyone, the moment they found out who I was, and they, they assumed I was they assumed I was Polish when I when they heard my name first. So they didn't know I was American. But they went out of their way. A lot of people went out of their way to help me, to show me around, to they they were desperately proud of what was happening. And I remember one woman in particular taking me through what she was calling it was a Piazza Victoria, uh, I think um in Timashora. Um but I was seeing scenes from a physical material sense, I was seeing Scenes of horror, of both poverty and and destruction around me, but I was seeing an amazing people who, who were clearly, for the first time, felt agency in their own life. And when they when they got a foreigner, any foreigner, again, they mostly thought I was Polish. They they were like, "Wow, let's talk. Let's you know, let me show you. Let, you, know, you can't go there, lady. You got to do this. You need food. We'll give you food." You know, so it was an amazing experience. Wow, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. It's, it's tri- amazing that you were there for that. That was due mostly to my own stupidity. But yeah. Hey, stupidity can be a very useful, uh, very useful if you, tool. If you survive it, yes, you can learn That's it. right. <laughs> oh, my. Before we wrap up, if you could tell us a little bit about the impetus for writing a second edition of the book. Like, what is it about the second edition that makes it the second edition? Yeah, that's a great question. That, that is a good question. And it, it wasn't something I was originally anticipating. I'm very, very happy to have that problem. When I first wrote the first edition, I, I assumed that maybe my mother and two of her bridge friends would buy it. But I'm kind of happy that somebody else did. And thank you. Thank you deeply. The second edition came about because, as we've just been talking about, it's been so much changed. The Poland, the Romania, the Hungary that I knew decades ago is, is just a, they're very different places now. And they have very different roles in the world. And uh, I regularly speak with as I say, in, in my job as an analyst, I'm speaking with lawyers, consultants, uh, investment bankers all over the world dealing with global capital issues. And I'm regularly having conversations of, you know, the, you know, they'll, they'll, two of them will get together, meet for the first time and say, hey, did you, you know, that restaurant in Kiev, you know, that one on, is that, yeah, I really like it. that. When I'm in Bucharest, there's this one hotel, this little B&B I like to stay in, you know, on this street. And, it's just become a normal part of the world. And that's what's astonishing. And so, and I ended up with two publishers on this. There were two publishers, both focused on Eastern Europe, New Europe books on the one hand, uh, published the first edition and uh, Academic Studies Press based in the Brookline outside of Boston. They, uh, they, they both have an Eastern European focus to what they publish, but they, they both came together and said, 
we need there needs to be an updated version. There's just been so much change that there are so many questions that we, we need an update. So and so by popular demand we have it. So I thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well thanks. This has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed All it. Right. Absolute pleasure, Mr. Yankovsky. Thank you so much. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. So, like, I've been meaning to say this. I'm, I'm from outside Boston and I lived in Vermont for the last 10 years. So it's been, I, I, I it, the leaves are just falling off the trees now here it's weird i don't i don't i don't know what to make of this <laughs> this place i've been to texas a few times but yeah it's gotta be i remember um uh, yeah. i was at a, a corporate retreat once and there was this creek that flowed through but it was sort of man-made uh and uh and it was but they had a dining area that went right up to the creek mm. and i noticed in the evening that there are all these little eyes looking at me from the creek mm. and and Someone that I was like, what are those like frogs? Well, those are watermarkers. <laughs> like, Don't worry, they probably won't come out. <laughs> I'm eating over there. <laughs> <laughs>